Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, joined by a theme of utopias and dystopias. That they share a first name is pure coincidence. We'll hear from Matt Cahoon on Mark Fisher, key to a reissue of Fisher's 2014 essay collection, Ghosts of My Life. And then we'll hear the geographer Matt Huber's critique of a couple of schemes to beat climate catastrophe that seem more dystopic than utopic. Mark Fisher was an English writer whose work focused on popular culture, politics, and collective psychology. After many years of fighting depression, he took his own life in 2017 at the age of 48. Fisher achieved internet fame a few years earlier with an essay, Exiting the Vampire Castle, which criticized a call-out culture that had become a prominent manifestation of the online left. A witch-hunting moralism and an atmosphere of snarky resentment had occluded all possibilities of transformative solidarity. It was not well received in some circles. Sadly, it could be applied to much of our virtual political culture today with little modification. Fisher is also known for several books, including Capitalist Realism, his term for, as he put it, the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it is now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. His 2014 essay collection, Ghosts of My Life, has just been reissued by Zero Books, with a foreword by Matt Cahoon and a postscript by the music critic Simon Reynolds. We're now joined by Matt Cahoon, a name that's spelled with quite a few more letters than you might guess, C-O-L-Q-U-H-O-U-N. He's a writer and photographer from Hull, UK. He is the author of Egress on Morning Melancholy and Mark Fisher, and the editor of Mark Fisher's Post-Capitalist Desire, The Final Lectures. Currently based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, he blogs at Xenogothic, that's X-E-N-O-Gothic.com. Matt Cahoon. Mark died, what, five years ago. Do you think his work has uh, held up over the last five years, or has has time moved on in ways that uh, make it seem perhaps not quite so fresh? It's interesting, really, um, because I think in a lot of ways, Mark's work is starting to become dated, if only because he was always writing from his own present. But at the same time, as much as a great deal has changed since Mark passed away, a lot hasn't changed. Um, and I think it's quite interesting how much of his work does resonate as much as this sort of these strange shifts, um, which I'm sure is partly what he always found quite so interesting about the time that we live in. Well, let's talk about some of uh, the concepts uh, that uh, one associates with his name here. Um, ontology, of course, most prominent uh, among them, perhaps. Where does that come from? What's it mean? And how does it uh, explain our present? Uh, ontology was a, a concept that I think was borrowed from uh, the French philosopher Jacques Derrida in a work of his called um, uh, Spectres of Marx, uh, meaning Karl Marx. And it was sort of taken up, I guess, by Mark and a few other bloggers in the in the mid-2000s. Around the fall of the Iron Curtain in the early 1990s, there was a sense that Francis Fukuyama basically said that we have reached the end of history. There are no more of these great ideological battles taking place as there was in the 20th, uh, 20th century. And capitalism as an economic system has, you know, won overall. And uh, that's the world that we will now live in. Um, but I think for Derrida and I think for many others, there's a sense that actually a lot of these things, that um, these battles that were supposedly won, um, these different ways, not just of organising our lives or of governing each other or, you know, just even ways of of being in the most general sense um different kinds of aesthetics also um different ways of approaching culture and politics a lot of these things linger on like specters um we think that their moments have passed and they're sort of faded away and they've gone but they linger on and they haunt us and i think for uh mark fisher and a few other people writing at the time ontology was their way of drawing attention to that fact um whether that was in terms of um rave culture especially in the uk or I suppose different kinds of yeah political movements um, whose potentials had supposedly um, been foreclosed, but um, they lingered on anyway and um, kept breaking through despite their sort of general denouncement in a kind of popular discourse. 
Another phrase, uh, the slow cancellation of the future, which I think is a quote from someone else, but uh, what's that mean? Uh, the slow cancellation of the future is uh, Mark had this idea that um, called uh, Capitalism, Realism, um, which was the subject of his first book. And his argument was that we've reached this strange ideological point where capitalism is the only game in town. There's nothing else. There's no other way of doing things. Everything else has already been tried and it's been unsuccessful. So ultimately, there is no alternative. And for Mark, one one kind of consequence of that way of thinking is the kind of the, yeah, the slow cancellation of the future. The idea that there's no alternative suggests that things are meant to just continue as they are. And we're going to stay in what Mark called uh, our frenzied stasis, where things may change, events may sort of um, rupture our sense of history, but on the whole, we're going to stay pretty much stuck where we are. And that has a real impact, yeah, on on how we think the future, um, whether that's from, uh, you know, something that we, that I think Mark saw in a lot of his, interest in in the popular culture of the 1970s whether it was you know the you know being promised hoverboards or or you know different ways of of living our lives um the, the future was was this our idea of the future was previously maybe more proximal to our present we could see maybe how we get certain places and now the future is wholly fantastical um if we think about the future we think about the end of the world we think about you know the the impending crises that we face um and we struggle to think beyond that point um of other ways that we might live our lives um and yet for for mark that wasn't just uh that's not happened by accident the slow cancellation of the future has been a an almost you know an ideologically speaking an, in, an intentional act to keep us keep us happy where we are or not if not happy where we are but at least complacent about where we are you say in your forward, um, the pessimism embedded in everyday life is what Zizek would call the spontaneous, unreflective ideology of our times. And it was Fisher's intention to shine a light in that pessimism. Could you talk a bit about that? Like what, um, <laughs> by shining a light, we hope to transcend it somehow? It's something that's actually come up again. I think particularly in the UK at the moment, Mark had this strange, he, he found the way that perhaps both in the US and in the UK, there was this strange complacency with regards to political movements that wasn't shared by other countries at the moment suppose in the uk we're a bit obsessed with this these this cost of living crisis there's this uh everybody's going on strike there's a general disenfranchisement with politics a discontent regarding um the cost of living um workers rights workers conditions but there's not much in the way of protest going on. People are on strike, but it's all kind of confined to people's workplaces, workplace disputes. And there was an article recently by um, Owen Jones um, uh, for the for the Guardian. He wrote, you know, that, that something very similar is happening in France, and France is protesting out in the streets—a kind of general sense of protest. Um, and in the UK, we don't tend to do that very often. No, was it Mark? I think. Um... Uh, Seth made the point that in France, uh, there were the tuition increases, uh, and that sparked a political movement. And in Britain, it just sparked what? Resignation or isolated protest? Yeah. So the same thing sort of happened, yeah, maybe 10, 15 years ago. And I think it's that partly that um, Mark really wanted to draw attention to, that I think in in certain kinds of, what would you call it? In, in some liberal nations, there is this tendency to believe so much in the political process that we have, that we confine ourselves to working within its bounds. The idea that, that I think I've seen also in the US at the moment, right, that there's there's all of, there's a lot of things happening that people are upset about. The response is always get out and vote, as if that's all you can do. As other countries will probably show, that's not all you can do. There's plenty more you can do to sort of, you know, um, make your discontent known. Um, I think that's what Mark really wondered about you know what what is it about certain nations and 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 certain a kind of belief in a certain kind of way that things are organized that um makes us you know toe the line in a a respect even though even though we're so frustrated with what's going on around us we don't make our discontent known in a way that maybe previous generations have and i think mark really wondered you know what why is that and i think for him it was that that kind of um yeah, that unreflective pessimism that we know things are bad, but we can't do anything about it, really. And I think in the way that 
Marx, he described himself not as a pessimist, but at least as being negative. Yeah, that was, um, there's been some discussion of whether capitalist realism is a pessimistic book. It isn't pessimistic, but it's negative. <laughs> How do you read that distinction? Yeah. Um, the best way of thinking about it, I think anyway, is that, you know, that the, uh, it's not a kind of tautology between positive me is good, negative is bad. There's a way that we can, you know, actively call something into question. It's not just about a kind of uh, a mindless opposition, or you know, yeah, or the opposite, or, or you know, the forced positivity of you just have to get out and vote and be a good little citizen. You know, there is a space for a refusal, a criticism. Negativity doesn't necessarily have to be unproductive. There are ways of being negative, of being um, critical, of being against a certain position or policy or you know whatever that can you know yeah draw attention to i suppose injustice but also ways of doing things differently to be a pessimist i suppose would be to say yeah everything is bad and you can't do anything about it but to be negative i think is to say everything definitely is bad but there's a lot at our disposal to challenge that sort of status quo it's funny i think this is one difference between our two countries the U.S. is almost compulsorily optimistic. We're supposed to be upbeat about everything and full of optimism. Um, and uh, pessimism is seen as pathological and unpatriotic. Um, it seems <laughs> like British culture is a little bit more familiar with uh, that kind of uh, temperamental gloom. Yes. Yeah, I think we have a tendency to be certainly gloomy, but also to a fault, right? I guess that's the, the there's, yeah, two sides of the same coin. There's a forced positivity. I think it's also true that we can have a forced negativity that's, uh, oh, well, or a forced pessimism um, that doesn't really help anybody. Mark says in one of these essays, um, the depressive is always confident of one thing, he is without illusions. But we do need illusions to some degree, <laughs> for one, just to um, get through day to day, but also just to have some idea of a possible future, maybe illusory, but it does um, inspire activity. So that kind of depressive realism is not necessarily politically fruitful. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the, uh, yeah, I always think about that when someone says, if they, if someone is described as being depressive, they say, I'm not depressive, I'm a realist. But I guess that's the question that Mark wants to throw up in a way, you know, what what is this sense of reality that we're supposedly is unchangeable you know i think that especially towards the end of his life and and even i think in in a lot of mark's earlier work there's this interest in surrealism thinking beyond the reality that we have and that being necessary if we want to change it to improve our lot i suppose we're listening to an interview with matt cahoon about the work of the late writer mark fisher since i'm a few minutes short of a full dose of interviews today rather than gas on myself I thought I'd play some of the song that helped give Fisher's essay collection its title, Ghosts by Japan. Well, I ought to leave The rain it never stops And I've no particular place to go When I think I'm winning When I've broken every door The ghosts of my life The wilder than before Just when I thought I could not be stopped When my chance came to be king The ghosts of my life The wilder than That was some of Ghosts by Japan. And now back to my interview with Matt Cahoon. Well, there's a brief departure from pessimism, a surge of, of, of belief in possibility and transformative future. In the U.S. around the Sanders moment and in Britain around Corbyn, both those things fell apart. There are remnants that live in the U.S. A lot of local politics um, is actually doing fairly well. That tradition continues. But what was it like in Britain? What the, the collapse of that Corbyn moment, what did that do to people's um, thoughts of the future and hope uh, for politics? I think, in a way, our situations, the situation on the left in both countries, I think, is quite similar. I think, yeah, the, the same effect has happened over here. When Corbyn was kind of pushed out of capital P politics, parliamentary politics, he still inspired people at a local level, for sure. Um, and I think that's still ongoing. 
but it also put into relief what's kind of come afterwards. And I mean, maybe I'm not sure if this weighs up the same way with the how people on the left are responding to Biden at the moment, but I know that for the at least for the current leader of the opposition in the UK, of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, there's a sense that yeah, the left's gone back to a a sort of managerial position that yeah, it's um is kind of supposedly realistic. Corbyn was denounced for being too idealistic. Um, uh, and there was always this suggestion that we needed to get the adults back in the room. The grown-ups had to return to frontline politics. But that sense of uh, that explicitly patronising sense of the grown-ups returning was just a kind of to steady the ship, to keep things going as they are. It's, it's definitely increased uh, frustration in kind of mainstream politics. But yeah, there's still a Corbyn and, and and various events that happened around that time definitely politicised the generation. And that politicisation hasn't gone away. People still do care and are passionate, even if they have less of a influence on the, on number 10, as it were, than they may have hoped to have had. Uh, several years ago, I was writing a piece on uh, DSA, the Democratic Socialists of America, and I did a bunch of interviews. And uh, I was asking several people what their vision for the long term of DSA would be. And one of the people I talked to, said, oh, I don't really think there is a long term. And I was just stunned by that, that to hear a young person uh, have absolutely no faith in possibilities for the future really shocked me. I guess that is kind of what Mark was writing about, that sense that there is no uh, possibility for the future, and it's been canceled rather rapidly, it almost seems. Yeah, it's very depressing. But then you, I guess it can also sympathize in a way that, you know, you think about what young people have to face up to in generations ahead, Um it all seems pretty bleak. And I guess that's interesting for in terms of Mark Fisher's work. There's maybe that's part of, of again the same question about pessimism and um and and negativity, especially since Mark's death and considering what happened to him really, that Mark took his own life, it's cast a quite a long shadow over his work. But really I think the truth is is that you know we live in a capitalist society that is itself suicidal. It's it's dependent on this, you know, the, the keeping the the sense of the good life for the few, as the as the many are kind of become resigned to their fates, as if there's no other way out. All paths have been tried. It's, it's an innately depressive a world view that we're given. The idea that there's no alternative, that there's nothing else we can do. You know, depression comes from in that sense. I think, and this is what Mark would also argue: this depression isn't simply come from within us, from a result of you know simply explained away by brain chemistry it comes from the top down and how this system has foreclosed its own future of its capitalism overall else you know no matter if the results of that are climate breakdown or you know increased inequality um a general decline of standards of living this is the only option and that's not you know it's it makes for a pretty bleak prospective future, if any future at all, in quite stark and abject terms, really. I suppose I'm I'm heading towards middle age, but I've also had similar conversations where there's a kind of uh, a sense of not having a future among the young for sure, but also I think an increasing defiance that, you know, it's not going to, uh, a rejection of a complacency that's maybe been building for some decades. I only hope that it can push through. Let's hope so. Popular music figures very large in Mark's writing, uh, and since that, uh, you know, it's kind of lost in a, a compulsion to repeat, as Freud would say, uh, that there's not a whole lot of innovation, that it's lost the political engagement that it once had. And I was reading that and thinking, yeah, I feel that way. I often listen to current popular music and think, there's nothing really new here. It sounds like this, this could have been done 20 or 30 years ago. But I also wonder if this is just the attitude of someone who's aged out of the demographic for popular music. Yeah, how much of that is there? And what about the role of, of culture in his analysis of politics? Uh, is, is, is that just one way of approaching it? Or is culture actually a way of uh, thinking about transforming the system? Yeah, it's tricky, I think. I think that as a, as a general remark, I think it's one that often makes people really annoyed at Mark. And yeah, maybe from that sense of, you know, a generational gap where I'm sure there's there's plenty that, that uh, of, um, of 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 modes of expression that kids are getting really excited about. But I think it's 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 a there's a broader question too where, you know, it's it's to what extent is the way that the system is set up actually 
shaping the form that music takes or culture more generally than actually, you know, people, creative people that are, you know, making this stuff. Um, I think about the ways that, you know, the, the, the album structures have changed depending on, um, you know, to, to, to maximize revenue for streaming. You get more bloated albums that are longer. You get the same with um, films. I'm sure I saw, oddly enough, an interview with Matt Damon yesterday, where he was kind of explaining, you know, that the way that the, the the precariousness of the of the of the film industry is that you want something that can be a sure bet. You want your kind of Marvel Cinematic Universe where you can make this great deal of money on a on a kind of film, and that lessens the the what people are actually willing to put their money behind. So you have less of these kind of softer rom-coms maybe or these romances that maybe you know they'll go straight to streaming services and the big blockbusters now are even bigger i think it's that kind of development where we see that the new doesn't so much respond to responds to what it thinks we already like and there's various people that have done studies on this where quite literally at the sort of and a kind of micro level songs generally do sound the same as each other um because they you know they, they want people to People will like what they're already familiar with. It's that kind of cultural tension, I think, that that Marks maybe more directing himself towards. Where it's not just that people aren't thinking in terms of you know it being experimental and really pushing boundaries. I think that's that happens all the time in all places. But there's far less opportunity now for that to actually make a difference or have a cultural impact. And I think that's the most depressing thing. Concluding, depression is an interesting phenomenon. I, I went to college in the 1970s. I'm, I'm a geezer. I don't remember uh, depression being so endemic uh, as it seems to be now. It just seems to be all over the place. And rather than think of it as, like you mentioned earlier, a change in brain chemistry or just some change in diagnosis, it really does seem to reflect a structure of society or a real political problem. This this so-called mental illness is actually reflecting something that's wrong in the larger society. And by treating it as just a matter of individual pathology, we overlook the social cause. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Mark wrote about that you know, repeatedly. I think it was one of his most um, sort of poignant bugbears, really. He wrote an article for The Guardian, I think, in 2014 that was... Um, uh, called why is mental health a political issue and he argues in there precisely that point that it's all well and good being able to explain you know depression is caused by low serotonin levels um and that's generally what doctors will presume so it'll give you something to boost those levels but there's never an explanation given as to what causes those low serotonin levels in the first place and there's there's a, it's a there's a great difficulty with um uh how to include that i think in how we develop um thinking about mental illness there's there's quite a facetious way of doing it here in the uk presuming that i cannot swear on your show so i won't but it's a it's a a term that doctors have taken to use called s word life syndrome which which is it sounds facetious but they kind of mean it generally that doctors are have a very small purview i suppose they fix what they can fix and the doctors generally especially yeah well in in britain they sort of look at where depression is more prevalent they find that it's in deprived areas where people are precariously working and that's not something they can treat so they almost embellish depression with this extra slightly tongue-in-cheek syndrome that addresses quality of life and i think that that's the disparity that mark really really found deeply troubling that yeah, depression is more endemic. But I think it's it's a it's a factor of all these things. That I guess we've been talking about you know this this foreclosure of the future, um, the future in general being quite bleak. But also yeah, a, de- a real decline in living standards and and living conditions. And when you're faced with all of that, of course you're going to be depressed. But again, I think that there's a a tendency for when people read Mark's work to see him as yeah, just someone explaining our own depression away when actually i think you know there's the negativity of work of his work is really important and it's uh it's not just that we've lost certain features or or we've lost certain conditions the point is that once you are aware of those things you can fight against them and mark wanted to fight against them i think quite fervently at the same time you know he was not despite being aware of what society was like, he wasn't outside of it. He was a victim of this stuff as much as everybody else was. And the fact is that the system kills people. And unfortunately, Mark was a victim of the same system that he was, you know, fighting against. But I think there's still a lot of hope in his work and uh, plenty of tools for figuring out what to do in response to that kind of, yeah, endemic depression. That was Matt Cahoon, a photographer and writer based in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. 
He is the author of the foreword to a new edition of Mark Fisher's essay collection, Ghosts of My Life, from Zero Books. You can find him on the web at xenogothic, that's X-E-N-O, gothic.com. Matt mentioned an old Guardian article by Mark Fisher called Mental Health as a Political Issue. It was a response to criticisms of a website, Callum's List, that aimed to compile reports of people who'd killed themselves because of welfare cuts by the conservative government of then-Prime Minister David Cameron. The article opens with a quote from a former Labour Party official who declared that welfare suicides don't exist. Suicide is a mental health issue. Fisher rightly thought this was nonsense, rejecting standard complaints about the politicization of mental illness. As Fisher wrote, the problem is exactly the opposite. Mental illness has been depoliticized, so that we blithely accept a situation in which depression is now the malady most treated by the NHS, the National Health Service. The neoliberal policies, implemented first by the Thatcher governments in the 1980s and continued by New Labour and the current coalition, have resulted in a privatization of stress. We need to reverse the privatization of stress and recognize that mental health is a political issue. These words were published 10 years ago, and we've made no progress since. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of Ghosts of My Life, a 2017 track by Rufika Crew, which samples the Japan song we heard earlier, which Mark Fisher wrote about in his essay, also of the same name. A plenitude of ghosts here. Rufika Crew's government name is Clifford Joseph Price. Next, a critique of some efforts to think about the climate crisis. Matt Huber, who was on the show in May to talk about his book Climate Change is Class War from Verso, has a review on the sidecar section of New Left Review's website of two volumes that take an austerity approach to the problem. The Future is Degrowth by Matthias Schmelzer, Aaron Vansenjan, and Andrea Vetter, and Half-Earth Socialism by Troy Vitese and Drew Pendergrass. They both think that we need to live on less, much less. Matt Huber, a professor of geography at Syracuse University, disagrees. We're obviously facing a um, profound ecological crisis, climate top of the list, but there are many others that go along with it. So we've seen a whole bunch of various approaches uh, to dealing with this. Let's talk about two, the degrowth paradigm and the half-earth socialism, both of which you wrote about. Oh, let's start with degrowth. It's a hideous neologism. What does it mean? Um, and what's its intellectual history? Where did this come from? In a, in a nutshell, it's kind of advocating what they call planned reduction of material throughput. And to be fair, they, they say alongside sort of maintaining human well-being for all. But I would say its intellectual history really goes back to the Keynesian welfare state period where they correctly sort of trace this obsession with growth to the post-war era where GDP and GNP were sort of invented as these statistical measures of economic health and societies and politicians and the business press and everyone became sort of obsessed with these with these GDP numbers. And one of the reasons they did that though was to take the edge off demands for redistribution. Yeah. And, and I mean, to me, one of the points I make is that GDP is sort of obfuscates the fact that we live in a class society that, you know, when GDP is going up, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone is doing great. It means capital is investing and growing and possibly hiring people. So, so that's good. But, you know, it does not tell you about the class relations between capital and labor. Obviously, this whole growth paradigm went into to crisis in the 1970s. And then there became a, a widespread sort of neoliberal class offensive amongst the capitalist class to push austerity for the sake of growth. But there was at the same time, a, the, the emergence of the limits to growth, environmental 
movement, the energy crisis, where a lot of people were saying the problem with our society is it has too much, right? It has this sort of this affluent society that's gotten to be too fat and happy. And and so there became this kind of alignment between this, this group of uh, ecological e- economists who were quite critical of mainstream economics, which proposed limitless growth um, in their economic models. And, and they really want to ground uh, economics in a more biophysical basis. And, and so since the 70s, they've been promoting this vision that ultimately this sort of fossil fuel growth-based uh, society has to be scaled down dramatically. And that has led into what we now call degrowth, which has really gained in prominence, I would say, in the in the next energy crisis we 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 faced with the commodity boom around 2008 and has really taken off since then. It's interesting that Paul Volcker came into office as the chair of the Federal Reserve saying the American standard of living must decline. I think a lot of these folks would agree even if they might not share the same class position as uh, Paul Volcker. I was looking through the books this morning again um and and in one uh definition of degrowth that they quote actually from someone who's name um Georgios Callas, one of the big, biggest proponents, he, he basically says that, yes, material comfort and incomes might decline. They are very sort of slippery where they, they do say they want to make sure things like healthcare and food and housing are all guaranteed, decommodified, but, but they also are most keenly focused on declining the material throughput, right? And, and if you think just for two seconds about that, you realize that the United Nations um, projects that the population is supposed to grow on a planetary level to somewhere around nine or 10 billion by 2050. And, and so if you have a growing population and you want to decrease the material throughput, there's some really serious issues you need to think about uh, in terms of how much uh, per capita everyone gets when you're declining material throughput and increasing population. So. Now, to be fair to them, uh, if the climate crisis, or I should say when the climate crisis gets bad enough, it will lower standards of living. It will lower Absolutely. GDP. It will cause, you know, all kinds of material uh, crises. We've seen, you know, just with this uh, issues around the supply chain uh, during COVID, COVID itself, I mean, all these things um, that have ecological dimensions. So I guess you could say what they want to do is, to use the Freudian term, turn passive into active instead of having nature shut down our economy. They want to uh, throttle back on it so that we can sustain ourselves. Yes. It's not like eternal growth is uh, is is a given. Yeah, I think the the phrase they use a lot is collective self-limitation. So, rather than a Malthusian view which does propose there are sort of fixed natural limits that we are going to come up against, they say that we have to put social limits on us collectively. The question that I try to propose is that how this vision of degrowth, which again, just sort of flips that aggregate focus on GDP growth and says, no, we're going to decrease growth, how that could actually win over a population and society that has really been living with degrowth for several decades with the neoliberal class offensive, with wage stagnation, with mounting debt and inequality. And there's a very interesting parallel historically where this kind of degrowth movement and environmental focus on less and consuming less really happened at the same time that capitalism sort of went into stagnation and went through this period of like low growth, right? As much as they think the whole problem is the societal focus on growth and and capitalist focus on growth, but capitalism hasn't even been that particularly good at at growing, at least in the um, industrial uh, global North countries lately. And so um, this vision of less and degrowth is not necessarily really going to be a winning political message for people that have already been suffering with trying to do more with less for, for decades. Yeah, I mean, the Northern Hemisphere, the OECD countries, imperialist countries, whatever you want to call them, have been experiencing very low levels of growth by historic standards. And uh, that's come along with uh, um, social crises, fiscal crises. The capitalist system is not very good at handling low growth rates or negative growth rates. Does this literature address that? Not really, because because they're so fixated on our societal obsession with getting growth up which is true, you know, every politician is going to tell you we're trying to grow the economy. They haven't really paid as much attention to the to the issues of long-term stagnation. There's just been a paper published by a scholar named Jack Copley who goes into this, how at the very moment that degrowth is is talking so much about our obsession with growth is when 
uh, these advanced economies have gone into a kind of um, non-intentional degrowth, <laughs> very low levels of growth. But ultimately, how capitalism works is that it's not really society or politicians that need growth. It's capital that needs growth and capitalists who invest their money demand a growth in their returns on investment. And so that is really the societal force that needs growth. It's the capitalist class. It's the ownership class or rentiers or whatever you want to call them. And so to actually win this, this program of universal decommodified uh, goods and planned reductions of material throughputs, you actually have to take on the capitalist class. You have to, you have to actually expropriate them, to be clear. And so that's where the degrowthers really have no very clear theory of change about how they're going to confront the power of the capitalist class. In fact, the degrowth book near the end and the conclusion is basically like, we want to admit that we haven't really addressed the class issue that substantially. And oh, by the way, all the proponents of degrowth are all hyper-educated white middle-class people. <laughs> so maybe we should focus on class and future research. And that was how they addressed class at the very end of the book. This other book you write about uh, seems in many ways more interesting, not necessarily more appealing, but certainly more interesting to think about. Uh, mm -hmm. Half-Earth Socialism, Troy Vitese, is that how you pronounce it, and Drew yes. Pendergrass? What's the half-Earth part about to start with? Well, that's a proposal that was put forward by the sociobiologist E.O. Wilson. And E.O. Wilson, who um, got famous from studying sort of the biology of ant communities, if I recall correctly, <laughs> But he became a fierce proponent of biodiversity uh, conservation, saving as many wild species as we can. And he was part of like projects to kind of catalog all the different species on the earth. It becomes quite problematic when you kind of look at where the biodiverse hotspots are around the world. And uh, lo and behold, they're all sort of in tropical countries, which are historically sub subjected to imperialism. So you have like northern ecologists talking about how we have to save these biodiverse zones. And um, it, it gets a little, a little sketchy. But in any event, uh, E.O. Wilson proposed to basically set aside half the Earth's habitable surface for nature. Right. To that would be the only way to kind of reverse what, you know, what many scientists have pointed out is a crisis of biodiversity depletion and uh, what some have called the sixth extinction is that the only way we can reverse this is do a radical program of really setting aside half the earth to nature and letting sort of wilderness and and biodiversity regrow and um, replenish itself in that half earth proposal. So the half earth authors assert that if we're going to really follow this this solution to the biodiversity crisis, we really need to take seriously planning, right? We need to think about planning the earth system in this kind of using computer models and understanding, you know, how much land and space can be used for human uh, requirements and how much we can set aside through this half earth proposal and still doing so, they argue, but I, this is not proven, <laughs> that uh, we can do all this planning and, and maintain a good, healthy life for close to 8 billion people at the same time. I'm speaking with the geographer, Matthew Huber. I just checked the, uh, the Census Bureau population counter at 7.9 billion globally. Do they address the population question? If you reserve half of the Earth's surface for um, some rewilded nature... What about the 8 billion people? So there are some serious questions about some of those people that might live in that half of the earth. And they are, they do have this slippage where they suggest that because indigenous peoples have been so adept at stewarding and maintaining biodiverse areas with their own livelihood practices and, and care for the earth, that I, I feel like sketchy saying it, but they would be part of the half of the earth that is left to nature, which is a, a, a real colonial trope that kind of naturalizes indigenous people. But in any event, they basically, if we're only going to have half the earth, they promote they, this incredibly austere vision of how we can make it work for the other uh, 8 billion people on the other half of the earth. And that includes energy quotas for everyone. And part of the book is about crunching all these numbers and saying that we can propose different land use models to the population and have them vote democratically on what's what's preferable. But, you know, some models have 2,000 watts per person. 
Over uh, what kind of period? A day or a year or a lifetime? A year. <laughs> yeah, a year. sorry. Okay, yeah. 2,000 watts a year. And But some, you know, I kept reading and they kept doing different models and some were as low as 750 watts per person. That's next to nothing. <laughs> it's really not. I mean, people would freeze to death <laughs> with that kind of wattage. And, you know, they promote only solar and wind power, which really puts them in some trouble because if you're putting aside half the earth for nature, solar and wind take tremendous amounts of space. And because solar and wind are intermittent, they said we might need substantial amounts of biofuels, which is another extremely land intensive. In one scenario, they have 26%. So a quarter of the human half of the earth is going to be devoted to biofuels. And to make all this work, right, to really actually have a model that could say, sure, we can feed 8 billion people with half of it in nature and solar and wind panels and biofuels. The only way this works is if you have um, close to 100% veganism, right? Because they're correct, a huge land use and destructive land use practice is animal husbandry and raising animals for livestock and dairy products and all the rest of it. So sure, if you eliminate all that, you free up a ton of land. But the question again, like for the degrowthers is politically, (laughs) how are we going to win over people on a program of, if not mandatory uh, veganism, at least widespread veganism or widespread vegetarianism, Um, How is that going to win people over politically? And it's not clear. In the book, they just say, imagine the half-Earth socialist revolution happened tomorrow. And then they just (laughs) go into, uh, you know, part of the book is like this play on the News from Nowhere uh, by William Morris, which imagines a kind of idyllic socialist future. And they imagine a world of 2047, where everything has been, the half-Earth socialist revolution's already happened. And the other thing I want to point out is they basically say that this new regime is going to involve a hell of a lot more people working in agriculture. So they're going to eliminate a lot of the gains of industrial agriculture, which have massively increased labor productivity in agriculture. So there's going to be a lot more people that need to work on farms. So it's going to be austere in that way, where you have a lot more manual agrarian labor involved in the reproduction of society. So that's not exactly a winning political program either. Now, the land use aspects of veganism are controversial, aren't they? I mean, there's some people who say that uh, it requires an awful lot of land to raise that many uh, vegetables and that, you know, animals are actually efficient uh, protein compactors. Yeah, you know, I'm not an expert on these questions, but to actually, my understanding, to feed humans in ways where they get the protein, you actually do need a lot of land devoted to, you know, monocropping soy production and other kind of protein substitutes. Uh, They talk a lot about beans and figs, (laughs) but beans especially. So I think they they have a vision of of a lot more beans in our diet. Um, But absolutely, there's a lot of research that does show grazing and animal livestock production can actually be part of like what what is often these days called a regenerative agriculture that helps sort of uh, capture carbon and replenish the soil. And um, we know that actually, Marx talked about this, actually, how using animal manure to aid soil for ter- fertility is like a huge way of improving uh, agriculture and the metabolism between humans and the earth. I can't imagine, imagine anyone selling a political agenda that says you're going to have 750 watts a year, you'll freeze, <laughs> you'll freeze in the dark uh, there will be regular electricity blackouts. Uh, you'll be only able to eat beans. Uh, you won't be able to travel anywhere. You probably wouldn't have any kind of, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to talk like this over um, the internet. That would all have to go. Do they actually address the issue of how do you sell this agenda? Pretty much not at all. <laughs> That's, you know, again, they, they kind of just say, imagine the, the revolution has happened and then and then they go on to, to planning these these models right you know and to me they reject marxism in the book um as being promethean and being this idea that we can kind of like develop an industrial society to kind of allow for human emancipation so they're very clear on that and they embrace a kind of utopian socialism so that's that's fine but um to me like what marx and engels really saw was they were living through this you know world historical transformation called the industrial revolution that fundamentally transformed our our societal productive capacities 
And they, and you know, Ingalls would say things like, for the first time in human history, we now have the chance to abolish poverty. Because before, it just, there wasn't enough production to go around, right? And so they really saw the Industrial Revolution as creating the material conditions for freedom, emancipation, and also a, a, the type of planning that uh, Viteze and Pintergrass would support, which is like really rationally managing our metabolism with nature in a planned way that can actually, you know, you would hope create a sustainable relationship. But that does not necessarily entail kind of like this scaling down of all industrial production and all industrial comforts that it would it would be harnessing our industrial uh, production to solve our ecological problems. And so what I try to argue in this New Left Review article is that a lot of Marxists would talk about capitalism is really fettering the development of the productive forces to really solve a lot of our crises. And that's what Marx and Engels said. But today, you can look at basically most of our ecological problems, particularly our climate problems, are because all the technological solutions that exist from renewables to nuclear power to carbon removal, they're all just too expensive. They're too costly. And the market says that fossil fuels are more profitable. And so the, basically, the private ownership of energy systems is fettering the development of, of technologies that can solve these problems in ways that could allow for a much more widespread vision of human flourishing than than beans, and agricultural labor, and uh, 750 watts, right? So in many ways, these half-earthers sort of just completely... Uh, reject this kind of much more positive vision of socialism that that Marxists would advance, that that actually we have the material capacity now to give human freedom and ecological restoration at the same time. And you mentioned Engels. Uh, the last third of your piece or so is uh, devoted to both Engels' critique of this kind of thinking, but also he's, he says there's some use to it. So yeah, bring bring in Fred to, uh, to for some enlightenment <laughs> here. He wanted to to give these utopian socialists credit, you know, they, the utopian socialists like Fourier and Owen and um, St. Simon were, you know, like inspired by the French revolution, which was really about, again, human freedom and emancipation from, you know, these kind of feudal shackles and tyranny and all this stuff. But what Engels noticed is that a lot of these utopian socialists sort of thought that having all these beautiful ideas, ideas in their head, would just translate automatically to socialism. And, you know, whether it was Owen sort of setting up these small scale or not even small scale, like factory uh, cooperatives where labor had a lot of ownership of the means of production or these kind of St. Simonian kind of industrial planning kind of ideas that could from up high kind of dictate how, how we're going to uh, plan a kind of more rational industrial production. These people sort of forgot that to win socialism, it's going to have to come from the actual material class relationships that exist in society. So Engels, you know, talks about how you really have to look at what's happening, which is widespread proletarianization, something that hadn't really happened in history, where you have a mass of the population being kind of torn from the land and being thrown into the cities. And Engels would say, we actually, if we're going to win this kind of vision of socialism, it's not going to be about having smart ideas in our head. It's going to be about winning over this new kind of mass working class that has this capacity to usher in a new world. So actually bringing back class analysis and and, and coming up with an actual uh, theory of change that, that could conceivably explain how we confront the power of what they said at the time, the bourgeoisie who controls production, that's where scientific socialism would be, would, would be more on this uh, class focus, looking at the actual historical, historical conditions of production as they exist. Yeah, the utopians provide what you know Jody Dean would call the horizon that we could aspire towards or move towards, but uh, there's not much of a map of how to get there. Yes, yes. And both of these books have, have very little strategy on how to, how to get there. And, and, and I will, I mean, the degrowthers have this sort of vague idea that all these little, what they call um, micro experiments or nowtopias, small scale farms and cooperatives and sharing of, of, of free uh, software on internet uh, networks. All of this will 
add up to a, a counter hegemony <laughs> that will sort of slowly spread throughout society um, and then take on the capitalist class and overcome capitalism. And it's just, it's a pretty naive sort of political theory of change. And, you know, we need a more serious class analysis of how we're actually going to be able to confront the, the power of the people who control our society these days. They love this free software example. I know so. Paul Mason loved that too, like MP3s. Um, but, you know, if I share an MP3 with you or a Photoshop, if Adobe would allow it, I could still have my Photoshop and my MP3, but I, I, we're going to fight over a loaf of bread because <laughs> that's not infinitely divisible or infinitely reproducible. Yes. If I have a loaf of bread, you can't. Exactly. And going back to the ecological crisis and the climate crisis, I mean, it really is about these sec these much more material sectors like food and energy and housing and transportation. And those those things really involve a lot of capitalists who organize those sectors with one goal, profit, and are just sort of hell-bent on continuing business as usual with their control over these sectors. So it's really, you know, if we want to confront this crisis, we have to figure out a way to build a, a, a mass movement that inspires and mobilizes uh, masses of people to where they can understand that they're going to win real serious material gains from this movement. And so both of these books really have no clear ideas on how they could build that, that kind of mass movement. Both of the books are very clear that we need to get rid of a lot of stuff. We need to sacrifice a whole lot. We need to drastically reduce the throughput of society, but that the more inspiring vision that, that Marxist and socialist and working class movements have had about what we get to win with a socialist society is it's just pretty absent from these visions. How's Matt Huber, professor of geography at Syracuse University and author of Climate Change as Class War. His essay can be found in the Sidecar blog of the New Left Review website. For those of you who are annoyed that I featured a critic of these positions and not an advocate or two, be assured that I'm going to find some in the near future. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this, a song by a band that Simon Reynolds thought that Mark Fisher might like were he alive today, Dry Cleaning. It's Scratch Card Lanyard, released a couple of years ago. Till next week, bye. We can't, can't open the door, can't feed cancel. It'll be okay, I just need to be weird and hard for a bit and eat an old sandwich from my bag. I've come here to make a ceramic shoe and I've come to smash what you made. I've come to learn how to mingle, I've come to learn how to dance. Join a knitting circle. I've come to hand weave my own bumper ladder in a few short sessions. It's a Tokyo bouncy ball, it's an Oslo bouncy ball, it's a Rio de Janeiro bouncy ball. Filter, I love these mighty oaks, don't you? Do everything and feel nothing. Wristband, theme park, scratch card, lanyard. Do everything, feel nothing. Do everything and feel